morning, everybody. Um, a couple ways to grow a church. One is you bring people to church. Another is um, one of my favorite ways. Uh, the Bible says be fruitful and multiply. And uh, Keith and Rebecca Jones had a little baby boy, Lexton. Uh, I think we have a picture of him. Yeah. Keith was in the first service and he said, uh, we, my wife and I went back and forth over the, la- the name. Uh, Lex means law uh, in Latin and she loves that idea. And uh, Keith loves the name Lexington because he believes that the American Revolution, he's a history teacher, he says the American Revolution began in Lexington and Concord. So they compromise on Lexton. <laughs> I thought it was a, a, a great insight. And if you think about Lex, the law, uh, Lex Rex was written by Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish covenanter. And uh, his declaration, interestingly enough, is that there's the laws of nature and nature's God. And, and everyone is subject to that. There's only one ruler of the world, and that's Christ. And every man is subject to the Lord. And in England, uh, it was declared by the king that he was the head of the church. And these Scottish Presbyterian ministers said, no, when the king comes into church, Christ is the head of the church. And they considered that tyranny, so they killed 15,000 Scottish Covenanters. The Covenanters ended up immigrating to Ireland, then they were booted out of Ireland. They ended up in America. 70% of the Revolutionary War generals were Scottish Covenanters. This whole concept of a a representative government, a a constitutional republic, had its underpinnings in Scotland uh, with, you know, Samuel Rutherford, John Locke. Uh, It was a fascinating insight. And I was really touched by the name, and I thought, no, they're, they're really searching it. And then uh, not only did we add Lexton to the roles, but um, as you noticed, uh, Pastor Tony was leading worship because Micah's not here. He was in a hospital with his wife, my daughter, Mich- Molly, who uh, they, they gave birth to another congregant. And this <laughs> is Elliot Lionheart Stevens. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know what the name was, and Michelle kept saying, you're going to love the name. And I was thinking, uh, I, I heard Elliot, and I was thinking, Elliot Robert Stevens. And then, it was, <laughs> and then it was Lionheart, and I'm like, okay, yeah, it is cool. Uh, they call him Leo, uh, Leo the Lion, and, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I just love how these young couples are coming up with these insights to pour into the next generation. I was sharing with somebody this idea that... Um, if Billy Graham were, were still active and operating and doing crusades, if he would fill stadiums of 100,000, and I think it's about a 10% response at most um, evangelistic crusades, and then uh, the 10% coming forward to profess a faith in Christ, and then after a year, uh, like 30% are still walking with the Lord, and the, the return is pretty minimal. And I was thinking, you know, to, to reach a, a lost world, almost 7 billion people on the planet, the, the greatest way, and the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full. This makes three for Molly and Micah. It makes three for Keith and Rebecca. And I keep telling these younger couples that a quiver is five arrows. Uh, I got my five. And, and with that, you, you consider if, if the five children have five children, that's 25. And then if you're, you live long enough to see your grandkids, that's 125. And you, you multiply that and you're pouring in and the Bible says as they're walking along the path, as they're standing, as, as you're in the, the, on the way, you're imparting these truths to, to your children. Raise a child in the way that they should go. When they're older, they won't depart thereof. 
And, and we've been entrusted as parents, as stewards over the children's lives. And at the end of their life, you can't blame the teachers or the Sunday school teachers. You, you, you we're accountable to the Lord for the children entrusted to our care. And children are difficult. Um, you know, it was, it was a rough week, honestly, because um, uh, we said goodbye to a, a friend of 12 years in our family and probably the sweetest friend you could imagine. I mean, every time I, I came home overwhelmed, they would always greet me with a smile. Uh, they, they were always happy to see me. And that was our dog, a 12 years buddy. And, and when we got him, he was three years old. So that dog lived 15 years. He was half uh, English pointer and Labrador. He was a beautiful dog. We, we found him at the Kern River and uh, went back a year after that. And the camp um, director said, you know, no one had come for the dog. And he actually crawled into the tent with my boys and then crawled into our heart and was with us for 12 years. He was an amazing dog. And not one whimper going through just massive cancer, not one whimper. And every time the door would open, what was left in his body, he'd get up to greet you at the door, go and then collapse, just an exhaustion. And um, he would take himself out to go air himself, even though it was, every step was painful. And uh, you just, you look at that and you just think, you know, thank you, God. And, and then as soon as Buddy stepped into eternity, and I, I'm one of those theologians that believes animals will be in heaven. If you disagree with me, I don't want to hear it. Um, <laughs> it's non-salvific, so just deal with it. They're, hey, Jesus will be riding a white horse. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. It's figurative. It's also literal, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. Um, but but the, the, the point is, is that, you know, here this, this really wonderful, you know, dog that it was never a burden, uh, steps out of our life, and then in comes Elliot, and he comes into the world crying. And anytime he makes a noise on either end, it results in a mess. And, it, and it's an enormous investment. And I could just see, you know, in the delivery and watching Micah and Molly and the pain in delivery. And then, you know, at 12 years with this child, it's still not at a place where it's self sufficient. You know, you're, you're, kids are hard. And they, they require sacrifice. And, and they get irritating at times. I, okay, yours don't. Mine do. <laughs> but, you know, my, my dad taught me a really cool lesson at the latter stages of his life. Um, you know, deep in the throes of Alzheimer's. And you've heard the story, but it, it, it's worth repeating that, you know, his coping mechanism would be with Alzheimer's to give you a tour of the house. I didn't need a tour of the house. I knew the house. And then when he was finished giving me a tour of the house, he gave me another tour of the house, another tour of the house, another tour of the house. It wasn't until about the seventh or eighth time that he imparted a profound lesson into my life. He'd take you upstairs into the hallway and on the right side of the wall were all of his accomplishments and Time Magazine article, McCoy's Navy. Uh, Silver, Bronze Star, Legion of Merit, uh, President of Chamber of Commerce, President of the Rotary, Senior Executive Vice President, just all these awards all the way down the wall as far as the eye could see. And on the left side of the wall were all the pictures of the family. And it wasn't until the seventh or eighth time through the tour of the house, trying to pretend like I'd never seen it before, that I finally got the lesson that he was trying to teach me. He never showed me the right side of the wall. He always showed me the family. He understood his greatest responsibility. When my boys turned 13, I took them on a thing called a walkabout. And in the scriptures, there's, there's not teenagers. There's children, 
and adults. And at 13, you go from being a child to being an adult. You give, you're, you're given authority and responsibility. You're accountable for your actions. And in the Jewish culture, it's a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah where you go from being a child to being an adult. And I literally called the boys out from the women, and I remember taking them out. And I, the first trip we took was to the cemetery. And I told each of the boys on their 13th birthday, I said, every great journey begins with the end in mind. And I said, this is where all flesh ends up. I said, what do you notice? What do you observe? And they said, well, there's nobody here. And I said, yeah. As a flower blooms and then fades, gone is its location, and people forget. What else do you observe? Well, there's the year of birth and the year of death and a dash in between. I said, that's what life is. It's a dash. And we're on this earth for one reason, to be reconciled to God, reconnected, relinked. The word religion is Latin for relink, reconnecting with God. We're separated from, from our sin. And I said, you're on this earth to reconcile to God and reconcile as many people as you can. And you don't live for yourself, you live for others. You can see on the tombstone, some people would put a royal flush with all the cards because they love gambling or they put a cruise liner or all these other things. And some would have scriptures. And, and as you observe these, you start to remember, what does your life mean? What does it count for? A good name is like a precious fragrance, better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. And and a name that is pleasant in this synesia, which is what Solomon declared was a form of rhetoric where he combined two senses. It's, it's similar to saying she smelled like the Taj Mahal looks at midnight. Beautiful. So he would combine the, the sense of hearing with the sense of smell. And he said a good name. You hear that name is, is like a precious fragrance. And smell is an olfactory sense for memory recollection. And when you, you hear that name, it's like a fragrance that draws you because of the way they lived. And they lived for others. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And I said, my job is to raise men, and you are now man today. You, have, you, have, you know how to start the car, and you know how to drive it. But you have to understand that with that comes this idea of protection and, and responsibility that you are to provide and protect. And, and it, you know, it's an illustration, and a lot of you, you know, you're, you're at the age where you can reproduce, and the idea is, wait a minute, that doesn't make a dad. A protector and a provider does. And the day that, that you're to take a, a young lady's hand in marriage, you have the father, and it's my favorite part of the wedding, where the young lady comes down, she's dressed in white, and I get choked up every time because it's a picture of us, though our sins were scarlet, we've been washed as white as snow. And in an English wedding, the bride comes down in white, and all the men are dressed in black. It's funeral attire, and, and it's, it's depicted that way, that they're all dressed in a black tuxedo. You're married in the same outfit you'll be buried in because Christ died that we would be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And, and as they come down, I say, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today in the presence of God to join together this man and this woman in the holiest state of marriage. Marriage ordained by God in the time of man's innocency is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but soberly, reverently, and discreetly. It's into this estate that these two persons present now come to be joined. And I ask now, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And it's at that point that the father kisses his daughter and he has been a provider and a protector. And he's getting older. And he looks at this young man that I hopefully have raised well. And he says, I see in you someone who will carry on this task that I've been entrusted with long after I'm gone. And you'll do the same for your children as I've done for her. And I trust you with this. And then he shakes the hand, places them together. And that is one of the most profound. The Bible says a man will leave his mother, father, be cleaved to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And it's the start of another generation of ideology of God-fearing family that will impart on this earth um, a, a, a respect for God 
that they will raise their children in love and the admonition of the Lord. And, and as you see this, you see, you know, this multiplication of pouring in these truths into the lives of others. It's fascinating. And I was touched by that. And as I was contemplating with, with, um, with Elliot and also thinking about Lexton and thinking about the young couples in this congregation, how in the midst of a secular progressive move, they're raising their children in this state that seeks to want to dominate from, from birth to, to death uh, an ability to indoctrinate as opposed to educate. And, and I, was, I was touched by the faithfulness of these families. And, it, and truly, the Bible says be fruitful and multiply, but it does require sacrifice. It does require sacrifice. And, you know, the old adage is, uh, the definition of a father is a man who carries pictures of his children in his wallet where his money used to be. And, and I think of all the vacations Michelle and I could have gone on with that residual income. But my dad pointed out a great truth that this is what life's about right here, son. I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God and, and to see these young women that Michelle has raised that will, will impart to those children. And one of the significant things to me that I'm so touched by is I would go off and speak at different events and I'd come home and she'll have the little children and she'd be cleaning high chairs and floors and diapers and vomit. And you think how insignificant and how inconsequential. You're off talking to all these people. And she never said that to me by any way, shape, or form. She always saw this as a calling. And interestingly enough, in the text we're going to read momentarily, a woman made a lunch for a little boy that changed the world. An inconsequential act of making a lunch that changes the world. Other than the resurrection, it's the only miracle that occurs in all four gospel accounts. And that woman set out that day to make a lunch for a little boy. It changed the world. And I, I think we bring what's inconsequential to the Lord, and he multiplies it. And he changes the world. And don't get lost in the doldrums of life. See everything you do for his glory. You're imparting to the next generation. You're, you're planting trees of whose shade you'll never see. It's not about you. It's about the generation to come. We live for others. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. Have a servant's heart towards the next generation. Plant that seed. Watch it flourish. Amen? And because Micah's gone, I, uh, they both got a cold in the hospital. Go figure. Um, it was my job to do the announcements, and I forgot, so I'll do those now. <laughs> you know, one of our acts of worship, we, we, we worship the Lord through music, we worship Him through the study of His Word, but we also worship Him through our, our gifts, uh, tithes, offering, tithe, tenth, offering is whatever the Lord puts on your heart. And the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver, not out of guilt or compulsion, and that's the reason why we don't pass an offering back. I, I don't ever want you to give because you feel compelled. But it really is an act of worship that we're giving to God the first fruits of our life that he allows us to keep the 90 and, and he, he, by faith he lets us operate in the context of the 10. And, and I've never been in charge of the income. I've always been in charge of the expenses and I can control the expenses. And if I ever get to a place where I can control the income, find a new church. Uh, because that's guilt and compulsion. Don't give unless your heart is moved to give. God, God wants you and when we give, it's, it's an act of surrender. It's a representation of our faith. 
And, and, as, and as we come to him in this act of worship, we thank him. And I just want to tell you that as the pastor of this church, for 19 years, he's never let us down, not once. He's never let us down. And, and going into the summer months, it's tight. And we were struggling before we came in. And Pastor Tony and I, one of the things I love about how the Lord operates is he'll, he'll, he'll contract the offering so that we spend more time pressing into him. And as we press into him, he, he releases his hand through the hearts of his people. And I just have to say, you know, God has blessed this fellowship with people who are faithful. And I, I love saying this to you. It is an honor to be your pastor. This is the most generous congregation I think a pastor could ever have the privilege to be a part of. And I just want to go before the Lord and thank him. So let's do that now. Lord, it is an act of worship. Watching as your spirit is manifested in the hearts of your people. For God so loved the world he gave. And Lord, to see your people give. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the way in which you've worked so generously in and through the lives of your people. That we are so like our heavenly father. We're generous. And Lord, I, I thank you that we can never outgive you. You always meet our needs. And I, I do ask, Lord, in gratitude that you would refresh those who refresh others. I testify to you, Lord, that my heart has been refreshed by the generosity of your people, and I pray you'd refresh them and encourage them. Let them realize that anything given to you will never be wasted, and anything given to you first will never be lost. And so, Lord, thank you. We offer this to you, and we ask that you would bless it, and, and as you did with the loaves and the fishes, you'd multiply it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last two announcements, Sunday night. Tonight is the first Sunday of every month we do extended worship. Pastor Brad, it's a time where we pray for you. It's an opportunity for the pastors of the church to come and have a worship time. Uh, we work on this day, and we, on Sunday nights, we just come and enjoy the worship, and then we pray, and they pray for us, and it's, it's precious. And Jesus said, my Father's house will be called a house of prayer, and what you're doing, is it really worth doing if you can do it apart from prayer? And all I'd ask you to do is ask the Lord this one question. Whatever you're doing tonight, say, God, is what I'm doing tonight more important than coming to spend time in corporate prayer, and let him work that out in your heart? Amen. Uh, and then high school midweek service has been changed from Wednesday nights to Thursday nights. Uh, it's still at 7 p.m., but they're going to do it on Thursday nights. So the high school midweek service is on Thursday nights at 7. And that does it. All right. Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 9. If you don't, uh, there'll be some folks walking down the aisle. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And turn off your cell phones. Luke chapter 9. This has been a precious passage to me. It's been a difficult week losing Buddy. And then uh, interestingly enough, last Sunday there was a person who was agitated walking back and forth in the foyer, um, mumbling under their breath expletives and really disturbed and I had had coffee with this individual and tried to minister to them and, um, and, and the security was concerned and so I, you know, after the second service I invited this person to my office to sit with them and, and they, they were upset, they were angry, using expletives and, and I had to get to an elders meeting and I was limited in time but I, I have a real heart for them and um, a young person, you know, in college age and, 
and, and trying to converse with them and just, you know, hard, hard soil. And uh, because of my limited time, I gave them my cell number and said, you know, and I'd done it before, but this time I said, you know, go ahead and call me and we'll connect and have lunch together. Well, I, I, before I got to the offices over there for the elders meeting, I had probably 30 texts and they just kept coming through all that night and up early in the morning, this person was ruminating and just, and it was vicious and awful and just angry and, and, uh, and I'm going through the death of my dog and the birth of my child and all this stuff coming through and, and I was just burdened by it and I'm doing something for the uh, one party up in the legislature. They've asked me to do something statewide, and I've got a lot of work to do there. And then I just took over being chairman of the board of a major ministry across the country. And I, I'm, I'm stretched and I want to take time. And we were supposed to go to San Diego for, to go to Coronado on the 4th, which is a great joy for me. And <laughs> Elliot screwed that up. And, <laughs> and I got invitations to go and be at people's houses. And I, quite honestly, I just I wanted to stay home. And I was kind of cocooning and just trying to process all this as my head was spinning and, the, you know, just spending time in prayer. And I just felt like my efforts were inconsequential and the demand was overwhelming. I don't know if you get to those places. I'm, I'm assuming that the majority of you do. And you, you just feel like it's too little, too late and too overwhelming and you're wasting your time and you're just overwhelmed. And, and I began just spending time giving it to the Lord piece by piece and kind of cocooning. And bless Michelle's heart, she, she saw it on my face and she was praying for me and just taking it to the Lord and asking him for wisdom. And, and then uh, I, I got to this passage of scripture and, and just, it's like all of a sudden the Lord just ministered to my heart profoundly. I was so touched and blessed. And I, I pray it does the same for you because within, within the reading of this, this passage, there's, it's so rich, and God has something special for you, and it really ministered to my heart. I pray it does the same for you. So with that, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up Luke chapter 9, verse 1. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. The passage reads, Then Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him, Jesus, and he was perplexed, troubled, confused, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see Jesus, and the apostles, when they had returned, told Jesus all that they had done. And then Jesus took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And Mark said he had compassion on them. That's interesting. Verse 12, 
When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and that's just counting the heads of the families. There's probably about 15,000 people. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them just like the table here. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they ate all and were filled. And the word filled means they were glutton. They couldn't put, whatever was in their mouth, they couldn't even swallow it. They were so full. Like when you go to the Cheesecake Factory. And then there were 12 baskets of leftover fragments. And the word for fragment means uh, that, that they, were, they were untouched. They were whole pieces. And they were taken up by them. So 12 baskets were taken up, untouched pieces, both of loaves and the fish. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Lord, all who in the hearing of my voice, I pray that your word, as you promised, will not return void. And that you administer deeply through this profound passage as you have so profoundly educated these disciples and so desire to do with us. And so, Lord, please, I pray that your word would fall upon fruitful soil, that you would bless your people now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. (laughs) Well, in this passage of Scripture, it is... um, It's the only account of a miracle other than the resurrection that's occurred in all four Gospels. So profound was this that every single author sought to put it in their account of the Gospels of Jesus' life. And here you have Luke's account, and he's the one who interviewed all these folks after Jesus had passed, and every one of them recounted to Luke, and Luke faithfully put it in. Mark, who would do a Reader's Digest version of it, still sought it important to put it in, and actually gave greater insight than some of the other writers, considering the brevity of his writings. And, and John, he was in his 90s on the island of Patmos, recounting it, and still couldn't forget this event of the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew, he's one who understood it completely and laid it out there. And he added things that the other gospels don't have. And it's, it's profound that all four of these, these gospel accounts would list this, including the resurrection. So you can see how impactful it was into their lives. And why would this lesson be so easily remembered is because the disciples were taught and they learned. If nothing's been learned, then nothing's been taught. Nothing's been learned, then nothing's been taught. And this entire process of what is taking place occurred with Jesus by a teaching method. Fascinatingly enough, we have a Boy Scout troop, Troop 711. Um, and, and we are the sponsoring organization. I'm actually the chairman of, of the sponsoring committee. I'm the chairman of the board of the sponsoring committee. I'm a very important person. And, and the, the troop is called Troop 711. We have a number of boys. Uh, and they, they do a remarkable job. We have Eagle Scouts that have come through this program. Uh, and, and I am so proud of them. And it's actually a scout-led troop. 
So what happens is, as the boys mature in rank, and it begins with scout, and then tenderfoot, then second class, first class, star, life, eagle. And as each of them progress, learning these skills and these traits, and starting with each of the, you know, badges that they learn, they're instructing the other younger ones, and so they're all teaching each other. And the scoutmaster kind of steps back after he's front-loaded it and just watches as they start to begin to teach one another. And they teach them through a method that the Boy Scouts have defined as the edge method. Uh, I could have my two sons who are both Eagle Scouts stands up. They could explain the edge method as anyone in Troop 711 can do it. It's real simple. It's explain, demonstrate, guide, and enable. Explain, demonstrate, guide, and enable. And the reason why this is so cool is because in the Boy Scouts to explain, demonstrate, guide, and enable, it's listed this way. Explain how it's done. Then demonstrate the steps Guide learners as they practice these steps and enable them to succeed on their own. And, and I, what I love about Boy Scouts is it's one of the last rites of passage from, from being a boy to being a man. And, and I always say that it's a PhD in manhood when you get your Eagle Scout. And these young men, less than 2%, I think, of all Scouts that enter into Scouting. And I was I'm preparing on, on July 21st of this year will be the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing and, and all three men that landed, or the two men that walked on the moon, the three that landed, well, one was doing the, the capsule, but the two that walked on the moon, both were Boy Scouts. One was an eagle. Uh, all the men, I think, that have walked on the moon were Boy Scouts. This is a remarkable organization, and this idea of explaining how it's done, demonstrating the steps, guide learners as they practice and enable them to succeed on their own. The reason why I bring this up is because Jesus is doing exactly this. It's not like he learned from the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts learned from him. Just want you to know that. Baden-Powell was a believer. He was the founder of Boy Scouts. And this idea of imparting moral knowledge. And, and it all began back in Luke chapter 8. And I, I want to refresh our memory. Because we had what we called the parable of the sower. Which I redefine as the parable of the soils. The sower was the one who was sowing the seed and, and it called the parable the sower because he's throwing the seed out. And, and um, as he's throwing the seed out, we find that the seed is the word of God. The parable of the sower explained Luke 8, 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And the reason why I said it's not the parable of the sower is it's the parable of the soils because it goes on to describe these four soils you see at the bottom, the path, the hard ground, uh, the, the shallow ground, and then the weed-choked ground, and then the ground that's fruitful, 25% multiplies, 60, 100-fold. And, and then the sower is the one who throws the word out, and I was telling you, I'm the one who sows the seed. And, and really, it's all dependent on you because it's the condition of your heart whether that soil is going to receive this truth. And as I was in the office last week with that individual who was troubled, it was, it was hard ground. I'd throw that seed, just bounce off, just big boom, big boom. And, and you, you look at a room filled with people and you think 25% are going to be fruitful and the other 75%, it's just, some of it's just going to, I'm throwing it out, just drops right off. Some of it will land in shallow ground. You go, oh, that's kind of cool and you receive it and then trials, troubles of life come and then you just wither and fade. Some of you really embrace it and it starts to grow and mature and then you start worrying about your portfolio and, and, and you start worrying about your stocks and your, your work and, 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 you know, you're watching the news or listening to it and, and you're reading the paper and you're just overwhelmed and you're just choked out, just choked out and you're just fearful and scared and you just have nothing to give and just scared. 
And you just wither, just get choked out. And then there's those that their life is blessing others. They, not only do they have enough to provide bread and bountiful bread, but they have enough to give to others. And their life is fruitful. They have time when you call them. They're a good name. They're a precious fragrance. You're drawn to them because they're generous. And you're touched by that. And that's the parable of the soils. It's not the parable of the sower. The sower. You know, I, I shared this story. I love it. It's a, my, my pastor, Don McClure, he told it at a pastor's conference. Pastors were listening and he said, you know, when cars with electric windows came out for the first time, he bought a used one because he's Scottish. And, and he had... <laughs> And he had the boys, his three boys in the back seat, and they're going, Dad, where's the handle for the windows? He said, boys, this is a remarkable car. You must command the windows to go down. And he's got the master controls here, and the little boy goes, Win- window down. He says, no, son, no, son, say it with authority. And the boy goes, window down. And he presses, and he goes, oh, and the other one's yelling, window down. The other one's yelling, window up, and he's working the thing, he's going up and down. The kids go, this is awesome. And in the middle of this story, everyone's giggling. He stops and he says, you preachers are impressed with yourselves. But all you're doing is saying window up or window down. God controls everything. And you get too involved. And, and don't, don't put enough emphasis on the sower. Did, did you see the way he threw it? He said that animals go to heaven. I'm not going to this church anymore. Whatever, I don't know. And I was sharing with another individual, you know, struggles with some of the stuff. I said, look, it's like eating a chicken from Costco, a whole chicken. Just eat the meat and spit out the bones. Okay, just thought that'd help. All right. And, and, and the idea is it's the condition of your heart. Are you fruitful? You can find every reason to be angry, and, and you have to choose to be offended. And, and you, you have to be very, very consumed with your life in order to not be fruitful. And, and the thing that takes the 25% of the soil that's fruitful and the other 75% that isn't, one thing is necessary to make us all fruitful, and that's plowing. And, and, and we studied last week, you're either going into a storm or coming out of one, and that's how God brings us to the end of ourselves so he can pour in his maximum. So that we're prepared to receive. And it's amazing how tragedies hit us in life and we're cut at the knees and we're left at a place where God will speak to us. And the Bible says in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect and we're ready to listen. And that's when our life is plowed. We go through trial. And that seed is thrown out and lands in fertile soil and you're ready to be dependent on him. And the whole idea is the word of God. So in this idea of of explaining and demonstrating Jesus gives this explanation of the word of God. The word of God is vital. It feeds the world. It's truth. Thy word is true. Jesus said, I I am the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt with man. I am the way, the truth, the life. He uses the word the, meaning I and no other. I am exclusive. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. This is revolutionary. It changes the entire planet. God left heaven to become man and impart this truth and to share it and to change a culture. People oppressed, people enslaved by their passions. And he brings in reason. Reason is seeking truth and the higher good. 
And as man starts to contemplate and rely on this and sees that they've been fearfully and wonderfully made, they're not a cosmic accident, they're not some primordial soup. And you're imparting this truth to generations to come and you're committed. Planting trees of whose shade you'll never see and you're selfless in raising these children and pouring into their lives regardless of, of the chatter and, and, the, and, and the clanging cymbals and the sounding brass of a secular progressive culture. You're letting them know that God loves them and has a plan for their life and that there's redemption and, and transformation and we can be others centered and we didn't come to be served but to serve and to give. It changes the world. And Jesus is saying this is the word. It changes culture. It changes lives. It sets people free. And he steps into the darkest region of the world where the Roman Empire had its boot on the neck of every citizen and a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And he comes to set the captives free. He begins to proclaim this. He then goes from the explanation, he goes further with the explanation, he begins to demonstrate And in Luke 8, he demonstrates in this edge method, he demonstrates by saying this to them. He says, your mother and brothers are here to see you. And he says to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Don't just be a hearer of the word, James says, be a doer. I can say I believe that chair will hold me. I'm looking at hundreds of people sitting in the chair. I see the design of the chair. I have empirical evidence that that chair will hold me. I can say I believe it, but until I'm sitting in it, I'm not doing it. Hearing and doing are synonymous in, in, in the Hebrew mindset. And you can hear the word, but you must apply it. I want you to understand, I'm explaining this and I'm demonstrating. It doesn't just apply to me, it doesn't apply to you. I am telling you before my family that the word of God is necessary for anyone. It doesn't take exception. There's one king, and it's Jesus Christ, and every man has been created in the image of God, and he has given us inalienable rights, the laws of nature and nature's God, that we would operate in this context to be able to seek him and see him, and they're all governed by these laws of nature. And in explaining this and demonstrating, he goes further to demonstrate to them, as they get into a boat, and they start to sail across the Sea of Galilee, and the storm kicks up. And in demonstrating this and guiding them through this and this method of instructing them, the storms kick up and they fear for their lives. Jesus is sound asleep. Why? Because he declared to them by his word, which is true, we're going to the other side. And he trusted the Father to get them there. And the the storm kicked up and they were in fear of their life and they awakened Jesus. We're dying. We're in trouble. These are seasoned fishermen scared to death. And the Lord says, peace be still and calms the waves. And it's just like glass. He declares to him that his word has power over nature, over the elements. My word does not return void. It is true. It governs in the affairs of men. It sets captives free. It controls elements. And even the disciples said, wind and wave obey Jesus. They would say, Who can this be? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. And then they see that his word has power over a demon-possessed man. It controls the spiritual realm. They see that his word has the power to restore life as he raises the daughter from the dead. Talitha Kumi, little girl, wake up. It has the power over sickness as he heals the woman with the issue of blood. That is his word. He's explaining it. He's demonstrating it. And again, it comes back to this idea, explain, demonstrate, and guide and enable 
Again, explain how it's done. Demonstrate the steps. Guide learners as they practice. Enable them to succeed on their own. And then that brings us to the passage that we're reading this morning. And the profound nature of this passage to me is as it's beginning. Then he called his 12 disciples together, gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He, he, just, he just explained and demonstrated, and now he's guiding them. He says, I'm giving you authority over the same thing I just had authority over and continue to over demons and diseases. I want you to go preach this word. Sow this seed. Heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. I want you to go out in reliance on me. And then he says this, whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there depart. And from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. He explained it, he demonstrated, he guided them, and now he's sending them. At this point, he's enabling them. It's your turn. Go and do this. I'm fully God, fully man. I will never do anything in the flesh that, to require godly ability. I am yielded to the Spirit, and the Spirit will do for you what he did for me. God will guide, he will direct you, he'll give you the power over elements, over demons, over, over life, over sickness. And this gospel, this seed that you will sow is profound. Pour it into the lives of people. Bless them, empower them, encourage them. And he lays this out. As he lays this out, it's fascinating because they depart preaching the gospel. And in the midst of it, as, as they depart, he brings them into a huddle and he says, okay, you're gonna go out and, and you're gonna preach this gospel and you're gonna heal the sick and cast out demons. He says, you all understand? Yes, we do. Okay, break. And the huddle breaks and they go out. And there's 12, six sets of two. And they begin to walk out. I like that picture. It's kind of cool. It's not as goofy as the one before. In the midst of it, while they're out there, the work is now exponential. They're beginning to do what Jesus did, and word is, and renown is growing. And hundreds of thousands of people are following him. They're going out into all the towns, and they're, they're imparting this truth. They're sowing the seed. Some of it's falling on hard ground. Some of it is in shallow. Some of it is in weak choke. Some of it is fertile soil. And they're watching and, and, and going out in power and in, in might, and, and miracles are happening. Herod hears word of it. It says in verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him and he was perplexed, troubled, confused because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? It's interesting that Herod said this because when he said that I think it's Elijah or it's John or it's another prophet later in Luke 9 actually going into the ends of the passage um, Jesus would say, who do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say a prophet. He says to Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He, he, he learned the edge method. Explain, demonstrate, guide, enable, and, and Peter was fully in. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And he lays it out to him. And here it's interesting that Herod is troubled. Herod. Herod's an interesting cat. He divorced his first wife, the daughter of King Aretas, 
in favor of Herodias, who had formerly been married to his half-brother Herod II. Antipas was pleased to see Jesus, hoping to see him perform a miracle, but when Jesus remained silent in the face of questioning, Antipas mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. This is when Jesus was to be crucified. Herod would get a chance to meet Jesus, but it would be, he just said, look, you don't want to answer me, I'm sending you, I'm sending you away to Pilate, and Pilate would crucify him. Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, meaning that his father had given his kingdom split into four ways between his, his descendants. And Herod was threatened by Jesus. He was perplexed, troubled. The Geneva Bible, originally Tyndale had put the scriptures together to put it in the vernacular of man, not some obscure language so that the people could hear it and they would know the truth. The truth would set them free, putting the scriptures in the hands of man. It would start this Protestant Reformation and the Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Protestant Reformation. It would have in the columns all these things on civil government which would inspire our founding fathers, including Samuel Rutherford, John Locke, and a, a slew of others and they would bring this concept to America and we would be grounded in this faith and you'd see this all transpire. And as I looked in the, the Geneva Bible in relation to this Herod issue, I love the commentary in Luke 9 pertaining to Herod, and this is what they said of Herod. So soon as the world hears tidings of the gospel, it is divided into different opinions, and the tyrants especially are afraid. The last thing you want to put in the hands of mankind is to tell them that they're created in the image of God and that they have inalienable rights, that no man has the right to rule over them. No man has the right to tell you how to raise your children no man has the right to depict and to con be contrary to the laws of, of nature and nature's God. There's one king. He oversees it. The earth is the Lord's. The fullness therein. We're accountable to him. We do right by him. And the world will tell you to shut up and to be silent. They don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want you to be uppity. They don't want you to trouble their reign and their rule. And Herod's scared. Herod would ultimately lose everything. Fascinatingly enough, he thought that John the Baptist maybe had risen from the dead and heard rumor of it. And he was troubled by this. He was the one who killed John the Baptist. He also had a hand in the death of Jesus. John the Baptist, he, he was put in jail for all things by telling a politician that he's immoral. Pausing for emphasis. And while he was languishing in prison, we saw earlier in the text that we studied that John's disciples came to Jesus and said, John wants to know if you're the Messiah. He says, the deaf hear, the lame walk, go and tell him. And as they were out of earshot, he turned and he said, of all men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. And they didn't hear that. And he, they didn't get there in time. John was beheaded. He was beheaded because he had the audacity to say that, that, he, that, that Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife. And, and, his, and his wife was so upset about it. And she just said, who are you to judge me? I'm in power. I'm in authority. And she even, you know, Herod may be the head, but she was the neck. And she took her 16-year-old daughter, Salome. We learned this from Josephus, the Jewish historian. We don't know the name from Scripture, but it was Salome. And she dances this seductive dance in front of her stepdad. And, and as she's dancing, he's enamored. And all the drunk people are in there. And he's been drinking. And, and they're all, ho, 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 ho. And, and he says, whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And they're all going, yeah. 
And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter because his wife had whispered in her daughter's ear. And, and she said exactly what her mother wanted her to say. And Herod actually liked John. But he was, he was fearful of man. And they're going, yeah, kill him. And Herod said, so be it. And they beheaded him. And they brought his head on a platter. And now he's tormented by it. He would ever live this way. And by the way, it doesn't matter how powerful you are. There's only one king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You may think yourself, there's never been one to rule the earth. There never will be. God is sovereign. He will silence the tyrant. He looks for his people to stand and to be fruitful and to multiply. To proclaim this truth. This truth will come with trial. This truth will come with difficulty. You will bring your inconsequential loaves and fishes and the demand will be greater than your ability to provide. And you will be overwhelmed. And you'll sit on a July 4th perplexed and overwhelmed and depressed. You'll be tired. You'll feel like you need a vacation. Interestingly enough, before that occurred, the passage says after Herod stated this, the passage says the apostles, when they had returned, told Jesus all that they had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. They all came back and they said, you wouldn't believe it, man. We, were, we cast out demons, the sick and the dead were raised. It was awesome. I mean, we were in fuego. And I've seen this with young ministers. And the reason why I can spot it is because I saw it in myself. I still see it in myself. It's just a little different. It's amazing, you step into the ministry and you, you bring your inconsequential loaves and fishes to the Lord and he, he does the edge method and he begins to explain to you and demonstrate for you and guide you and all of a sudden it lines up and you start getting a little traction and feeling good about yourself. You've learned tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, years of grace, preservation of the saints. And you've figured out eschatology. And you just think to yourself, and I've seen the church run and I have a chance to preach and I'm on fire and I know how to do this. And you get out there and you, you just, your head's so big that you can't get through the door. And I know because mine was so big. And there's times where it still is. And I just think, did you hear the way I said window down? I was referring back to the, I just wondering. <laughs> And, and, and you, you get so impressed with yourself. And the Bible says humility before honor. Humility before honor. Humility comes by humiliation. You start thinking yourself amazing. And then you read the scripture. It says God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. I, I read that verse and I realized I am doing this because I can't do anything else because I suck. I just said that. I'm sorry. See? Humility before honor. <laughs> okay, I didn't work that well. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He, he picked the dumbest guy in the room to be the one to do this. That's why he picked me. And, and the minute you start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to, he has a way of humbling you. Well, I, one of the things I love, so love about Michelle and the wisdom God's given her is I used to go home and want her to ingratiate me with the ability of what I've done. She goes, yeah, it was good. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> and now it, it truly is, and I think she reads it, now it truly is 
I'm, I'm asking, what did I miss? But even then, your flesh still wants to play. You know, like, you know, tell me more about me. Maybe you don't have that problem. Maybe you're special. <laughs> but God has this ability to humble you, and, and they come back so filled with themselves, and right away Jesus looks and he says, oh, we got a problem. I have explained this to you, I've demonstrated to you, I've guided you, and now you've gone out to, to have enabled you to do it, and now you've got your legs under you, and you think you're all that and more. We need to go get away together. We've got to talk. He takes them to a deserted place and he, he begins to pour into them. And Vance Havner says, if, if we don't come away, we're going to come apart. You got to have a vacation. Jesus was tired. And it's inconsequential what you bring to the Lord, but the need is so overwhelming. And they still saw the hundreds of thousands of people that they hadn't even touched, even though they'd been in all the cities around. And you got to get away. And you know what? I'm going to take time off. I'm getting away. And, and it was uh, Warren Wearsby who said one time he had told his congregation, I'm going to take a vacation. And a woman came up to him after the service and said, the devil doesn't take a vacation. <laughs> and Warren Wearsby thought to himself, but he didn't say it out loud. He thought to himself, if he could go with you, he would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the devil doesn't take a vacation, but the devil doesn't have a human body. I get tired. I need to get refreshed. I want to read. I want my, my, my texts to stop. I want the email to stop. I want phone calls to stop. I want to just walk away from it. I want, I want to be with my family. I mean, ultimately, I will stand before the Lord and give an accounting of their lives, not yours. I'll sow the seed, but I'm not responsible for raising your kids. I'm not responsible. And we all have needs, and I want to be there and I want to educate people to do the same but we all need a break right amen, amen. I wish that was hardier no I'm kidding no and, and we take those breaks and the Lord knew that they needed a break and you need to pull those kids aside and spend time with them and, and they've been away at school or they've been doing this and you need to kind of realign them and point some things out and set them on that course again and it's comforting and, and you get time with your wife and you get to just reestablish that abiding relationship and get to see your family have fun. And it's a blessing. And so with this, he sends them out, but he takes them away so that they have some rest. And, they, and they, he takes them in, uh, outside the city of Bethsaida, and they had to take a boat, and the other scriptures say, and the multitudes were following them as they're going, and they finally land, and there's no weird people, you know, no lunatics or demon-possessed folks, but there are multitudes. It says in verse 11, when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And they received him uh, and spoke to them. He received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So the multitudes are following. And this is the cool part. I'm going to finish exactly at 1230. So you got 17 minutes. So hang in there. The multitudes are following along the shore. And they're just watching this mass. Blah, and they know what's awaiting them. And they're just spending time with the Lord. He's probably talking to him. He goes, yeah, you did this. You did this. That was great. But watch yourself. And you don't want to get too heady. And you don't want to get out ahead of yourself. Don't get in front of your skis. And he's just laying that out practical wisdom, spending time with them, and the hordes are moving, and they know it's coming, they know it's coming. You know when you get back from vacation, they're all there. Hey! And it's not like you got away from your, your you know, texts or your phone calls. It just, and it just takes, you know, exponential work. And as the multitudes are coming, one little boy runs up to his mommy and said, Mommy, Jesus is going from Bethsaida. He's cutting across the lead, and everybody's going, and I want to go. Mommy, I want to go. You are not leaving this house without a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you had anything, you don't have anything, take this with you. And she puts a couple of fishes and some loaves in there and makes lunch for him and says, you, Now you go. 
Inconsequential making a lunch that would change the world. Cleaning a high chair. Changing a diaper. Inconsequential. That little boy goes with his lunch. He goes running. He finds the Lord. And the scripture says that he had compassion. I love that. Mark says that they were sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. That's touching because it's, it's, a, it's a powerful picture to me, this idea of compassion. And he, if you ever wonder, am I supposed to help in this situation? Because listen, what I possess is inconsequential. I'm one man. I, I can only get to so much in the course of a day. And I, at times I feel spread thin. And you, know, you look, what's the alligator closest to the boat? And you just wake up. You just start your day. Lord, would you set the priorities, the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord? Everything's out there. What do you want me to focus on? And he just orders your steps. And, then, and he, you spend time praying. You think about these inconsequential things in life, the pile of wash in front of you. Sometimes for me, a day that is successful in the Lord is just doing my laundry. Your kids, inconsequential, cleaning up a high chair, vomit, whatever. Inconsequential should be, you know, maybe it's in the course of the day, your husband, your wife, a struggle they're having or need they have or just difficulty in your relationship. Inconsequential or just being overwhelmed where, where the resources are limited but the demand is great, like living in a community or a state caught in a secular progressive move. And you just feel like you are in a sea of confusion and it's just you. And, and the clanging cymbals and the sounding brass and the din of it all and just the insanity. And you just, there's just no way out of this. I gotta move, I gotta go somewhere. You go to work and it's just, I, I'm limited in my ability and this place is too screwed up for me to help anything. I hope nobody working at the church feels that way. But you come to a place where your, your efforts are inconsequential and the demand is overwhelming and you feel like you'll never make a difference. Never make a difference. And I have to tell you, this was a week where I felt I'd never make a difference. And yet Jesus lands this boat. He begins to heal anyone who needed healing and that's tiring. And they're coming up and telling you their infirmities. And there's nothing like being with somebody who tells you about every sickness they have. And it's a little lump, and it kind of turned red, and then it got itchy, and then it had a little thing. And then, you know, I have a little ache in my sciatic. Let me just see if there's anything else while I have you here. And there's a line of people waiting, and you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you have to listen because you want to really, you know, oh. And you're catching yourself going, oh, stop. You, they're the, come on. Oh, okay. And then you get back into serving others, and you're tuned in, and, and you're not looking past them. You're, you're with them. And the Lord is pouring into each of these and they're watching it. It's happening everywhere. And the day just wears away. He's doing it all day long. And it wears away. And then the 12 come to him as though he hasn't done enough. And they say, you need to send all these folks away and go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions. We're in a deserted place here. These people are going to starve. I mean, you're healing everybody, but they're going to starve to death. And we don't have any way to feed them. And it's just that that's what I needed right now. Thanks, fellas. I've been working my tail off and you're coming over here with more problems. Let me just fix that. I fix this, I fix that. What else do you need me to do? Does that sound like anyone coming home after work? <laughs> Just add something else to my plate. That's all I need. Just something else. I read this scripture. I never saw him act like that. But what's interesting is he turns to them and he says, um, you give him something to eat. They're like, what? 
we went into the towns. I mean, we have some ability, but I mean, that's pretty big because we don't. And they, they called for it. And a couple of them said that they were trying to calculate what it would cost to feed and how much money they'd need. And everybody's doing their, their bit trying to figure this out. And the other account says this little boy comes up to him and he says, here's my lunch. You know, it's got like some English muffins and some sardines and, you know, Long John Silver Happy Meal. Hey, here's my lunch. My mom made it for me. You can have it. Oh, what a sweet little kid. You know, here my, you can have it. She said, and you can have, you can come over. You could have it if you want it. You could have it. And they're like, whoa, that's kind of cool. Thanks, fella. This, well, we've got some loaves and some fishes. Look at that. It's really great. And what's that among so many? And, uh. And I, and I love in, in John, uh, in the account, John says, um, he says in, in the passage, bring it here to me. I want you to bring that here to me. That's important. Jesus looks at him and he says, bring that to me. It's inconsequential. How can this feed so many? He says, just bring it to me. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. I've explained to you. I've demonstrated. I've guided you. I've enabled you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really bring this point home. Bring that to me. And the scripture says, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes unless we go and buy food for all these people. And there's a little picture of it. I think it was sardines, quite honestly. I've seen the fish, and I don't think the mom would have given him something that big. These are the disciples, old school, looking at it and just kind of going, well, okay, it's getting groups of 50, and uh, I like that picture. That's kind of cool, too. And there's the little boy down there going, you could have my lunch. And the first thing Jesus does is he says, bring it to me. And they bring it to the Lord, and he lifts it up, and he blesses it. He blesses it. He said, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them the disciples to set before the multitude. So they ate and were filled. And 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. 12 baskets. Not just fragments. It means untouched. Untouched. They were all taken up, untouched. And it says that they were full, which is the Greek word, they were glutton. They couldn't get the last bite down. And you can imagine the disciples going, would you like another serving? I just couldn't eat another thing. I just, you move first. Okay, let me just try one more fish. I just, oh God, it's just, I just can't do it. You know, there's, there's, there's satiated where you've had enough. I'm satiated. And those are the people that are skinny because they know how to eat properly. Not me. I get saturated to the point of nauseated, you know, where you just feel so sick. Why did I do that? Oh, there's more dessert. Well, okay. You know, everyone had been there. there, They had just been fed to the rafters and there were 12 baskets of untouched food, 12 baskets. Fascinating, fascinating because the disciples, they had five loaves and two fishes And Jesus said, bring it to me. Matthew 14 says it, I'll let you see it. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. And Matthew says, bring them here to me. I can't tell you how much that ministered to my heart. 
Lord, it feels so inconsequential. And the demand is so great. I just can't keep these plates spinning. Lord, I'm tired. I have compassion. I'm, I'm burdened. I just don't know what to do. I read that. Up. Bring it to me. Cast your cares on me. I got this. You're willing, I'm able. One by one, just. Will you take this one too? I got you. And this one? Yep. Lord, the demand is so great and the provision is so little. I got it. Every area, I got it. And you know, I have had this great pleasure and I pray that if you haven't had it, you will one day. You fall asleep praying and wake up praying. And, and you fall asleep because you're giving things to him. Would you take that too? I got that. And this too. And we take that one also because I, and I, oh, I forgot one more thing. Oh, and I forgot you got there with this one too and you can have that. And he orders your steps. Lord, what do I do today? I don't even know where to go. I got this. And what about, I got this. I want you to take this home with you today. This is a lesson God gave me. We've been, through, we've been through Luke 8 and 9. Jesus has explained to us how it's done. He's demonstrated the steps. He's guided us, right? Yes? And now he's enabling, in us, enabling us to succeed. And here's how we succeed. What we have to contribute is inconsequential. And we, we put it in his hands. It is enough. It's one thing in our hands, but it's something totally different in his hands. God's work done God's way will never lack for supply. Lord, I don't know what to do with this spouse of mine. I'm speaking theoretically. Things are great with me and Michelle. <laughs> don't talk about that over lunch. It's gossip and we're doing great. <laughs> but think about it. You say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this spouse. I just... Would you put it in my hands? Lord, they have an anger. Would you put it in my hands? You know, the, the young person that I was talking to, I just, so overwhelmed by the text, and I just said, Lord, would you find, would you plow that soil and let that seed settle in fertile ground? Lord, I, 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 can, I can change the world from where I'm sitting by prayer, asking you to take it. I'm gonna put it in your hands. You wake up and you're just overwhelmed. There's a pile of laundry. Lord, I'm going to begin with this because it's in front of me and this is what you've called me to do. Kids need the clothes clean. Let's just do this. Lord, this child is overwhelming. I don't know how to reach this child. I'm not struggling how to educate what was it, raise a child in the way they should go when they're old, they want to part thereof. And I don't know if I can do the homeschool thing and I don't know if private school, if we can afford it. Would you bring it to me? Any man lacks wisdom, all he need to do is ask of me. I'll give freely to him who asks. I, you know, I, I have to tell you, I, don't, I, I, I am so beyond the, the despair that everyone loves to lament over 
in relation to the condition. I mean, it's July 4th and we're watching people angry over celebrating 243 years of liberty and freedom. And, and I, I think to myself, I am not going to get caught up in that. I am thankful for this country. I'm thankful for these things, but I will not, it's inconsequential. I'm one man. I can't contend with all the voices out there. And the Lord says, just bring it to me. Lord, I don't know how to turn the, the mindset and, and, and watch an awakening occur that people would start to realize how, how precious these freedoms are. I don't even know where to begin in the schools and I don't know how to begin in the communities. And the Lord just says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. You have a job, you have a business, you're struggling over the taxation, and bring it to me. Whatever you have to contribute is inconsequential, but when you put it in his hands, it is enough. It is enough. It is enough. It's one thing in your hands, it's something totally different in his. Give it to me, put it in my hands. There's a reason why this miracle is in all four gospel accounts. Because it was explained, demonstrated, Jesus guided them and he enabled them. And what he's done for them, he's done for us. And if you struggle over that, watch him multiply it. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Cast your cares on me, for I care for you. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. My body was broken, my blood was shed to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, that you would be reconciled to me as we watch that bride come down the aisle and reconciled to the groom. You have a whole new life together, one of truth, one of abundance. I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. This table is for you. Put it in his hands. Aren't you tired? Do you feel as though what you're doing is inconsequential? Bring it and put it in his hands. As often as you do this, Jesus says, do it in remembrance of me. I am king. I will rule and reign in your life. I control the elements. I control the spiritual realm. I control sickness and I control death. Come to me, put it in my hands. I will equip you to touch a nation. I will equip you to touch a world. You will walk away with a basket full going, wow. I woke up after that night of prayer with a basket of blessing. I brought inconsequential trash to the Lord and I walked away with a basket of blessing. Bring it to me, Jesus says. And that's what we're going to do. It's time to apply the edge method. Amen.